if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. In our last episode, I answered some of my Protestant friend Ed's questions about the papacy, particularly why do Catholics have a pope in the first place? But look, the papacy is a huge issue for Protestants. They're not only unsure about the how and the why of the papacy, but the what. What exactly can the pope do and not do? What is the extent of his power? Can he just make up new doctrines? And haven't popes always been the tools of various emperors, kings, and politicians? And is the Pope really infallible? For example, if he picks lottery numbers, does he always win? Now, cradle Catholics have a handful of helpful talking points to respond to these criticisms. But I thought that I'd tackle Ed's questions from his side of the church aisle, comparing and contrasting papal leadership to leadership in the contemporary Protestant world. Take a listen and let me know what you think. You can always email me at greg at consideringcatholicism.com or visit the website consideringcatholicism.com Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. Okay, last time we uh, did this uh, we were talking about the Pope. We're going to continue to talk about the Pope. You, um, I, I, should, I should say that I go back and listen to these uh, later on, because I can't remember everything you said. We're in a conversation. I, right. It was really good. I really liked it. Like, uh, as we're sitting here recording this, you just posted the one about Mary. I need to go back and listen to that because it was really, I found it really compelling and I need to go back and check it out again. But I do have, so you did a lot of, of uh, sort of heavy lifting there and I loved it. And I'm going to go, as soon as it comes out, I'm going to go back and listen to it. But I got some other questions. What actual authority does the Pope have and not have? Is he, is it just matters of faith? Is it just theology? What about smaller things that are smaller than theology, like cultural stuff, right. you know? Uh, and, and, and then maybe a follow-up to that is, can his decisions ever be reversed? Those are all great questions. So let's start with, let's start small and, and, and work up from there. Okay. So in the last episode, I talked about how you, you, you can't function as a church. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's 10 people in a Bible study in a living room that are forming their own little church without deciding who gets a key to the building. Right. And if the church is going to have a checking account, whose name is on the checking account? And who gets to sing the songs on Sunday and who doesn't? And there's just a lot of like really practical things, right? Yeah. Is the Sunday service going to be at 10 o'clock or 11 or you're going to split the difference in 1030, right. right? There's a gazillion practical matters. They don't have necessarily theological significance, although some big, we'll get into that, but somebody has to manage and lead. And so in the Catholic church, that is really the office of the bishop, okay? Each region or city or diocese. So by the way, the word diocese was a Roman 
Roman Empire, basically a Roman region, something like a county. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when Christianity began to develop in the Roman Empire, it was natural to organize around these metro areas. So you would have a major city and then the the rural areas around it formed essentially a county, what we might call a county, but they called a diocese. Mm-hmm. And then within that diocese, you had, in this part of the Roman taxation and governance system, you had parishes, which were something like townships or villages. Mm-hmm. And so it was very natural. Like you go down to Louisiana now, they still have townships or whatever they call parishes. And so that was the natural organization. So you would have a a group of Christians or a church in each parish or village. And then the county, the diocese, had an overseer who was generally operated from the metro area. And then he put the pastors and the deacons in place in the various parishes. So those issues of governance, practical matters of governance, Everything from the money and the keys and the who gets jobs and who doesn't and uh, accountability and all those things in the Roman Catholic Church are managed by our bishops. So mm-hmm. we, we live within, and I'm, I'm actually uh, you know, an employee, part, part-time employee in the uh, Diocese for a Church and in the Diocese of Grand, in the diocese of Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a bishop, Diocese of Grand Rapids, uh, Bishop David Wachowiak, and I work at a parish part-time. And so everything from our keys and our building and everything else, in a sense, is managed by the regional bishop, right? Right. And then that goes up. So he, in turn, reports up a chain of command, something like a corporate thing, up to ultimately uh, the bishop of Rome, right? So your question of what authority the pope has, at a certain level, he has... He has a practical authority over things like ordination and organization mm-hmm. that is devolves or whatever down through the bishops and from them down through the parishes. Okay? Yep. Now, let's go up from the practical matters. And those are things like who gets ordained, who doesn't, right. uh, you know, um, uh, teaching issues. Uh, but when you get to teaching issues, so we get to theological issues. This is where it gets a little bit stickier. Everybody can understand, I think, the practical governing, financial, ordaining, management stuff. But the, the teaching issues are, are interesting. So the Pope, traditionally and in church documents, is understood as inheriting uh, or continuing, is a better word, continuing the work of the apostles. And it depends on who you talk to and really... The extent of the Pope's authority in theological or doctrinal matters has been debated over the centuries and a little bit like a pendulum. So in certain centuries, the Pope seems to have more authority proactively and in certain centuries less and Mm -hmm. more of it is councils of bishops. And, you know, you live in this pendulum cycle over 2000 years of eras, whether it seems like the center you know, the driving thing of theological doctrine matter, doctrinal matters comes from councils of bishops versus assertive, an assertive papacy. Right. But the important thing is that their power is largely, I'm trying to choose my word carefully here. I want to say largely negative. And what I mean by largely negative is it's not the power to invent doctrine, but to guard. Okay. Doctrine. So there's a line in the New Testament uh, where Paul says, guard the good deposit. And there's this notion that the apostles left uh, the teachings of Jesus, or Jesus, you know, gives the, te- you know, 
teachings to apostles, tells them to teach everyone what I've right. commanded. And that the apostles had this, this deposit of teaching from Jesus. Right. And that their successors are there, in a sense, to guard and protect and preserve mm-hmm. that teaching. So, understanding the bishops as successors to the apostles and the pope as the leader of the bishops, to think of their authority in some sense as negative, in, in the sense of not that they can make things up, but they're there to guard and protect against things being made up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're there to guard and protect against heresy and error. And they're there to, while they, the church has always over the centuries tried to peer deeper and deeper into Scripture to understand it mm-hmm. more completely, that the Pope or the bishops have no authority to make up something that isn't there. And, you know, over the centuries, there's been a lot of pressure for that. So right now, let's, let's put our cards on the table. We are living in a crazy era that I think centuries from now we'll look back on as the great, and I, I said this in a recent podcast, that, you know, the next great heresy, of the heresy of the 21st century is, is about anthropology, about the nature of mankind. Mm-hmm. And the driving question has to do with human sexuality mm-hmm. and the human person. So LGBTQ, all this kind of stuff, right? And there is a lot of pressure to redefine Christianity and redefine the Christian concept of moral theology, the human person in moral theology, to in- incorporate the 21st century's new you know, ideas about LGBTQ right. doctrines. Well, there are those who would love to see the Pope come out and declare that the last 20 centuries have been wrong. Right. And that he has now peered into it and making up new stuff. But that can't happen. Because the Pope's authority is to continue the work of the apostles and to guard the work of the apostles and to guard the church against heresy and error. So when I say that the the Pope's authority is largely negative, what I mean is he's not there to invent things. He's there to guard against invention. And while certainly the Pope has teaching authority to look into and expand the teaching of the apostles by in a sense, applying it to new questions, the Pope has no authority to make stuff up. See, this flies in the face of, I, I now see my, uh, my take on this as having been, and my, and my Protestant friends, it's, all, it's been sort of a cartoonish view of this. Yes. It's been, uh, you know, well, those Catholics, they think that uh, the Pope can just, can just say whatever about God and, and things, and then you just have to do it. And, right. and the question behind it for me was always, well, what about if the next guy doesn't agree? And is he bound by that? And, and I see this, this, you talking about his power being negative uh, and guarding the truth. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's, that's far more comforting yeah. than, than thinking that there's some dude who uh, is saying, ha, now that I'm here, I'm going to invent a new thing. You know. Well, it's precisely because I, I, I spent years running around the megachurch world in the U.S. and overseas with a lot of very big name churches who, you know, their pastors are authors and television stars and, you know, all these kinds of things. And I saw the chaos of people just making stuff up. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, who, who and I, 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 I would be careful about naming names, but I can, I can name a major Christian author that we had, or I can think of a major Christian author that we had, a number of them, 
who I saw when I was working in publishing, I saw them over a series of four or five books wander away from the truth. Mm-hmm. And part of that was driven a whole nother conversation about how Christian publishing works or how publishing works, which is that you do a hot book. Now the next book has to come out with some new sizzling stuff or nobody will buy it. Right. 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 And then some new sizzling stuff on top of that. So what ends up happening is gr- there's pressure to keep up coming up with new ideas, new right. stuff. And I, I watch several major Christian, I'll, I'll, I'll name it, uh, Rob Bell. You know, who who just wandered further and further out there past where the trains don't run anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could just watch him go. Yep. And and some of us were sitting there just watching Rob walk away. And the question is, who could put brakes on? Who, who is there to put brakes on that? So if you don't have a pope, if you don't have, at least you don't have the notion that there are successors to the apostles whose job it is to guard the teaching of the apostles to continue to be stewards and custodians of the good deposit that Christ gave to the apostles. If you don't have that, which you don't have in the contemporary evangelical world, where are the brakes? Right. There, there are no brakes. It's, it's locomotive breath, right? From Jethro Tull. Right. It's just, you know, the, 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 the train breaks, the train's going downhill and there's nothing that's going to stop it. And so I, I think that one of the things that attracted me to Catholicism on a practical level was running around the evangelical world and seeing the chaos Mm -hmm. made me want to come to Rome where I go, we do have a system and a structure where successors to the apostles. Now they don't, they're not apostles themselves. That's not the teaching that we have new apostles. That that's the teaching of a lot of Pentecostal churches. Oh yeah. Where a guy goes, I'm an apostle. Yep. What these are is successors who have in, who who have the responsibility to guard and transmit and protect and preserve and share the teachings of the apostles, and in that sense, they are a a safety or mm-hmm. a, a guardians or custodians of it. Now, I know somebody's listening to this who's going to say, "Well, whoa, 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 wait a minute," but you know, a couple episodes ago, you talked about Mary. And all of this stuff. And I go, right. But look at, if you listen to that episode about Mary, what you see is that the church in a sense didn't invent stuff. It looked deeply into scripture. Mm -hmm. And the church and papal authority over time gradually, of, of course, looks into and applies the teaching of scripture and the teaching of the apostles, but it isn't free to invent it. So, so the issue of what authority does the Pope has, the authority, the, the Pope has very practical authority within the church. Mm-hmm. He is, I, I hate to use this analogy, but you know, for lack of a better, he's the CEO of the Roman Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, I, as an employee of a parish in the Roman Catholic Church, ultimately, at some level, have responsibility or, or uh, accountability up the chain of command to the CEO. Mm-hmm. But from a theological standpoint, he's not there to add anything. He's there to preserve and protect and guard and to transmit the teaching of the apostles. See, this is really, this is a comforting thought to me because I sat in... Uh as long as we're uh, naming names, I sat in Rob Bell's church. Oh man, I think like 12, 13, 14, 15 years yeah. ago. And he Back was in Granville. Yeah. We went there. I remember I had left full-time 
full-time ministry to go into um, publishing and some other things. And so for about six, eight months, my family, we were kind of like looking for a place where we could take the kids on Sunday. Right. And they used to have like bagels. And Rob right. Bell at that time was just walking through books of the Bible and he was yep. a really compelling Bible teacher. And, you know, it was 45 minutes away, but we'd take the kids over there and we'd they'd get a bagel and a cup of right. coffee and we'd get coffee and we'd listen to Rob Bell talk through. And then we'd take the kids to lunch and I'd say, hey, what did Pastor Rob talk about today? And my son was like, oh, he mentioned this from the book of Old Testament, blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of good. And then, but then we, you know, Rob became an author at Zonervan and we started watching him just sort of like every, he had to shock jock every next book further and further out there. And, and, you know, the question was, I remember people were like, well, doesn't the publisher stop him? Who are we? You're not a biblical authority. You're a business. We we had a lot of people that worked there that had seminary training, like myself and others, but we're there to sell books. My first day in Christian publishing, the CEO who I reported to sat me down and said, um, look, I, I, I need to, you need to understand this. Um, we aren't about people reading books. We're about people buying books. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, we're here to sell books. Right. And I can tell you when, <laughs> I mean, I've mentioned in the last episode, yeah, there are so many, there are so many great Christian books that are written by unknown, you know, pastors right. who will just never get published. Um, but me, I remember one year we did the duck dynasty Bible or something like that. Some kind of dumb thing. And I had to go to a, I had to go to a trade show and feature our new product, the duck dynasty Bible or something. Cause right. that was hot. We could move duck dynasty Bibles. So if you think that, that the fact that a guy has publishing deals is somehow ensuring you against theological error, right. or he has a TV show or a big podcast, you know, Somebody shouldn't listen to me because I have this podcast. Right. Uh, but at least within the Catholic Church, you go, the, the idea is the successor of Peter is there to carry on the work of Peter, which is to uh, teach, you know, the teachings of Christ and to preserve the church against error. Well, so, so why it's comforting to hear you say this is because, so there I, my wife and I were looking for a place to go. We heard about Mars Hill. It was this big church in Granville. It wasn't terribly long to get there, 30 minutes or whatever. So let's go there and see what it's about. Well, at first we loved it, right? Yeah. But only about six weeks into it, he, um, and I had heard him teach before and it was, had been several years before, probably when you were first going there. And he, anyway, he said some things that were, I thought theologically, questionable. I thought, well, he was talking about this third way thing. Yeah. And, and I was listening to him and I thought, I don't know. He was starting to, so he, he was referencing uh, a particular theologian and he had read this guy's book and, and I'm, and I, and my, my radar is pinging. I feel like I'm the submarine captain and I'm, I'm hearing that ping and I'm thinking, man, this is just not sitting right with me. And, and, uh, I can't turn that off. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm always listening Your for that. Spidey senses tingling. Right. Spidey. Yeah, exactly. So, so, uh, so I went, I went home, we went home and I looked up this theologian and sure enough his um, he was pretty far out there. And I thought, I said to my wife, I said, I, I know we really like it there and everything, but I can't, I'm to the, we went a couple more Sundays, but I was to the point like, uh, you know, I was, I was, I wanted to stand up and say something, you know, like, uh, I was to the point of saying, well, you can't say that. And here's why, you know? And I said, we, 
I, I don't want to go there anymore. And, and, and so that happens all the time. That's always happening with me. Wherever we go, I'm listening to the theology and I'm comparing it to what, what I think is right. And there are two problems with that. The first is I don't, I don't have anybody telling me you should listen to this guy. Somebody I trust telling me I, you should listen to this guy. And, I, and, and here I am. And then here, the second thing is here I am. Uh, 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 deciding weighty matters of theology. I don't want to do that. So you and I got to know each other because we were working at the same church right. for a while. It was a non-denominational church, so mm-hmm. we didn't have a denominational structure to answer to. Right. There was no synod, no presbytery, no you know, regional council, right. no bishop, no whatever. And we had three part-time rotating teaching pastors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one of them, and there were two others. And it was kind of a crazy thing how it all evolved. And right. um, I was working in publishing and other things and traveling, but I had agreed to um, teach. I think it worked out to be one or two Sundays a month and do some other teaching during the week when I was in town. And it was interesting because because we didn't have any controls or checks on us. So myself and the other two teaching pastors were largely free to teach whatever it is that we wanted to teach. And behind the scenes, we sometimes had disagreements about a biblical Mm -hmm. passage or an interpretation of scripture. And the question was, who is supposed to arbitrate between us? The people sitting in in the seats? Were were you and and your wife supposed to sit out there and go, wait a minute, Greg said this this week and the other guy said something different the week before and right. the next person the following week and all three of our teaching pastors are, you know, they're not on the same page. Well, just for the record, you never asked me. I would have told you, but okay, we'll <laughs> right? let that go. But, but, but right. So the, the, so at some level there has to be some way that you resolve these issues. Now, another thing that we gotta, we gotta talk about with the, with the papacy is magisterium and, and basically it's a big fancy Latin word that the best way that I'll try to explain it is like, you know, with the Supreme court, they talk about precedent. Yeah. So you say when the courts make decisions, um, that there's a body over time, a body of decisions that inform the future. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a little bit like that, that over the centuries, 20 centuries, the church has peered into scripture, answered questions. Mm -hmm. The popes have, have listened to, in a sense, listened to the arguments of various bishops and peered into these things and, in a, in a sense, have ruled, saying this is, you know, in line with the teaching of the apostles and scripture, or this isn't. Mm-hmm. But every time that happens, it becomes, an, it adds to this accumulated body yeah. so that, in a sense, over time the popes have less room to maneuver. Oh, I see. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So when someone says, hey, in the 21st century, you know, the pope can just wake up tomorrow morning and and say, right? right? You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's got 20 centuries of teachings and precedents and declarations and encyclicals and councils. And all of that is presumed to be right? The Holy right. Spirit having guided the church. And in a sense, he, his freedom his, to, to maneuver is, is greatly restricted because what he can do is only carry that on. If the Pope decides tomorrow that some, on some matter of theological significance, 
to go in some strange new direction, then it raises this awful question. You go, are you saying that the other popes were wrong? Are you saying that the councils were wrong? Are you saying that the Holy Church, the Holy Spirit led the church into error in the past? Well, no. So each pope, in a sense, becomes more and more and more bound, like another link in the chain, to what has come before. A new pope like Pope Francis or whoever succeeds Pope Francis has, does have latitude in practical matters. Right. Okay. He, he could issue a new hymnal. Right. Um, you know, Lord help us, but he could, we could have bongo drums, I right. suppose, maybe. Uh, but, but, but he can't change the teachings on the nature of Christ. He can't change... The, te- the mor- moral teaching. He can't change matter, you know, what was called fatness of faith and morals. Right. Uh, he could decide to divide the diocese of Los Angeles into two new dioceses. Right. You know, uh, he could decide to tighten or loosen the requirements for, you know, pastors or financial matters. But here's a question that has come up. And as we have moved into the 21st century, uh, the late 20th century, is can we have women priests? And even Pope Francis, who is considered, I think, somebody who is, has a more progressive vision or is East in line with a more progressive vision, and I don't mean that, okay, I'm just stating that thing, right. has come out and said, oh, I can't, that can't be done. Because it's not the teaching of the apostles, it's not consistent with Scripture, and it's not consistent with the teaching of 20th centuries. It may right. not be done. I, right. I'm not free to do that. Right. And, he's, and he's come out and said, previous popes have answered this question. Is it answer, the question has been asked, answered, and I'm not free to do it. So, you're, you're, so to my Protestant friends who are sort of afraid that having a pope is going to subject you to crazy swings of theology, I go, actually, your megachurch world <laughs> is where you experience crazy swings I of theology. Com- I saw that coming. Or your, your, your denomination ruled by like annual councils of delegates sent from churches that decide this summer when they're camera meeting that they're going to, you know, have, uh, you know, lesbian pastors. I mean, right. and not that I'm against lesbian pastors per se, you know, I'm trying to say, right. right. You know, not that there's anything wrong with that. You right, know, right, right. Seinfeld joke, but I'm just saying, you, you know, you, you guys can make stuff up. The Pope can't. Right. Right. I, uh, yeah. In fact, uh, the, the reform denomination just split again. It hasn't happened in a long time, but it just... Over this issue. Yeah, over this over, issue. Over this issue. Over, uh, over uh, LGBTQ clergy. Right. So, okay. So, uh, you're talking about Francis, and he's all in the news. He's yep. all over the place, right? Um, so, politics and the Pope. Um, uh, it seems like the, the Popes, you know, have always been... My sense of it was always that the Popes were in bed with the politicians, and that they were you know, being manipulated by the politicians or manipulating the politicians. And, uh, you know, and we have, uh, we have the papal state, uh, over there in Italy and it's, uh, you know, there's and a lot of, so there's a lot of corrupt popes. Or, and I say a lot, that's the Protestant view as well. There's a lot of corrupt right. popes. And what about that? Uh, throw the whole thing out because of that. Um, so, so what about, uh, talk if you would a little bit about, about the, the, um, Popes and and politics yeah. and, and the state and all that. Yeah, sure. So, right, this argument that the 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 papacy is controlled by the civil political sphere, right? Right. 
Um, this is this whole mythology that the Emperor Constantine, you know, created a pope to be his, you know, tool or whatever. It's just not historically the fact. So Constant, the Emperor Constantine, when he converted to Christianity, moved out of Rome and founded a new city, a new capital in the east, the Eastern Roman Empire called Constantinople. Uh, it's the current uh, city of Istanbul. It was conquered by the Turks mm-hmm. uh, eventually. And he founded the new capital of the Roman Empire in Constantinople. And he put a bishop in Constantinople. That bishop, um, to this day, right, the Eastern Orthodox churches are ruled by these bishops or patriarchs. And they generally lived under this system called Caesaropapism, which is that the, 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 the Pope is appointed by Caesar. Now, that's true that there were, there were bishops or leaders of the church appointed by Caesar, but not in Rome and the West. This is where the East and the West broke up. It was the, the tradition has been that in the Eastern Orthodox churches, which have many wonderful things about Eastern Orthodoxy, but its, its leaders, its major archbishops or patriarchs, have been in bed with or are tied, their authority has been tied to civil government uh, for, what, 1,600, 1,700 years. Yeah. Even today, when we talk about the war in Ukraine, you end up with the patriarch of Moscow and the patriarch of, right, these things. Yep. It was exactly the opposite in the case of, of the Bishop of Rome. It was the Bishop of Rome struggled to retain autonomy from the government. Now, fast forward, again, we're doing kind of zip through history. Right. The Protestant Reformation comes. Well, let's, let's consider two, two places where the Reformation breaks out. One, Germany with Luther, and the other in England. Okay? Yep. So one of the things that when the Reformation broke out, the, the princes in Germany, the German princes, because there was not one country called Germany, there was a region right. with all these little principalities. The German princes jumped all over Lutheranism because they could appoint their own bishops. Hmm. And so a lot of the early Lutheran bishops were, and there has been a tradition of, of the government. To this day, the government journey, government journey collects a, Germany collects a church tax. Hmm. If, you, if you're in Germany, you pay a tax on your income tax to support the churches. In England... Uh, Henry VIII doesn't wants to break off the Pope and form his own church, the Church of England, and he makes the Archbishop of Canterbury essentially the primary churchman. But the but but the the King or the Queen of England is the head of the church and and governs right. it. So what I'm trying to drive at here is it's kind of weird because the Protestant claim that the Bishop of Rome is controlled by government is strange because it's it, it's like the one major denomination where coming out of the reformation or the or eastern orthodoxy right. where the bishop is not controlled by any government so then you asked about like the papal states so so the papal states have devolved to this day to just the vatican which is what like the size of a like 58 or 100 acres or something like that size of a, a golf course but it's its own country so the Vatican, uh, the Holy See, is, is its own nation state. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. Because the Bishop of Rome, there was a treaty in the late 19th century, the nation of Italy, when the nation of Italy is formed, that the Pope needed to retain sovereignty. Why does the Pope need a country? Because can you imagine the, 
Pope of the global Catholic Church, 1.4 billion Catholics around the world, has to has a passport mm-hmm. from the government of Italy right. or the government of America or the government of Germany and has to get permission and pay taxes to the government right. of Italy. And if he wants to go visit a church, you know, somewhere in the world, or he wants to bring his priests or his pastors to visit him, they have to get passport control right. and permission. He's got to get his visa stamped, right? Yeah, get your visa stamped from, from Italy. And so the, the, the freedom and the sovereignty of the, po- the Bishop of Rome and the papacy has always been an issue for Catholics. And if you take a deep dive in, into the practical realities of church history, it has really been about maintaining the autonomy of throughout the Middle Ages. All of these different, you know, the French tried it for a while, the Spanish tried it for a while, various uh, uh, in, uh, Italian political forces, everybody tried to control the papacy. Mm-hmm. And the Protestant story is the papacy has been controlled by all these people. The real story is all these people tried to control the papacy, but if you look at the 2,000-year <laughs> history, all of their attempts, it was always really the, the real narrative, is the papacy struggling to be free and maintain its sovereignty yeah. and autonomy over and against all these forces that tried to control it. So to this day, the pope is uh, the leader of a global organization, the largest, oldest, and biggest human organization on planet on the planet, and, and it's autonomous of any political, civil government or control. Hmm. And I, th- I think that that's an argument, you know, in its favor. I, I don't think I answered your question about Francis specifically. Though. No, 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 but that's, that's fine. I wanted to know about uh, how, much, how much control is exerted over a pope or how much pressure is he under, how, how much, what does he have to do politically? But I understand from your... I understand your answer. Well, okay. So, so, so let's, let's be honest, though, that all, because the Pope leads an organization of one point today, 1.4 billion people around the world that functions in every nation state on the planet and has to deal with all of the practical matters that affect those 1.4 billion people, right? Human rights, yep. uh, you know, religious freedom, moral mm-hmm. issues, all the things that take place all around the world, right? right. That he has to, to lead, guide, govern, pastor, comfort those people, give them, you know, teach them, and in a sense, speak on behalf of the church. Yep. The popes have to deal with political realities and political leaders. Take the most immediate case. So we have in the United States, We've got a number of issues that Catholics have to have guidance on. Things like abortion, things like immigration, things like the death penalty, things like this, things like that. And in some of those cases, Catholic teaching is at odds with the teaching of the, or the teaching or the doctrines or the whatever, the political um, movements of the U.S. government. Right. And so the Pope and the Vatican and his, you know, in a sense, his cabinet have to, in, in some sense, deal with the U.S. government on those issues. What do we do about immigration? What do we do about the death penalty? How do we handle abortion? How do Catholics handle these things? What's the church's position on them? What is the church supposed to do when it has a United States president that, di- that, that blatantly contradicts Catholic teaching? 
and yet claims right. to be a Catholic. And how does the church handle that? If the Catholic church shuts down the, the president, does the president retaliate by shutting down Catholic churches or, or, or right? right? And if this is that complicated in the United States, how complicated right. is it with Catholics in China? Yeah, I was just going to say China would be a good example. Or, or repressive governments around the world. So the Pope is always, as the leader of the global Catholic Church, having to thread needles and right. move through minefields and negotiate and deal with the realities, all the things that, that impinge on uh, the lives and consciences and operations of, of Catholics around the world. And, and so in, there is a sense in which the Pope has to be or operate within a political sphere. But to argue that he's controlled by, I, I, I don't know which politicians control. Now, of, of course, any given Pope, so John Paul II, made strong alliances with certain kinds of leaders around the world, was very close to Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher mm -hmm. and helped be a, a moral voice and sort of a, a, against communism. Pope Pius XII was the Pope during uh, the World War II and had to deal with the Nazis mm -hmm. and the Axis powers and Mussolini. Popes have you know, get dropped into these situations. And, and from one Pope to the next, they have their opinions and priorities and orientations. Mm -hmm. You know, John Paul II was a pope that grew up uh, under sort of communist rule and had a perspective as a Pol Polish person. Mm -hmm. uh, Benedict XVI. Uh, Pius XII had been a, a papal diplomat or a church diplomat, had actually been like the Secretary of State, traveled mm -hmm. around dealing diplomacy. So when he became a uh, pope during uh, the rise of Hitler and Mussolini, he had drawn his diplomatic skills. Francis uh, was a bishop from Argentina. So he's the first Latin American, and he brings a perspective uh, from his life experience in Latin America that as he sits in this position as sort of the CEO of the organization, um, that's informed by his exper life experiences growing up in Argentina. You know, I, I, I had never thought of this till now, but, you know, so you're the Pope, and you're the Pope of all the Catholics in the world, and now uh, Germany is going to war against America or England or yeah. whoever in Europe, and you've got, you know, uh, X number, X million uh, constituents yeah. uh, uh, in Germany, yeah. and you have to, you have to still... Yeah. You know, you got to get a threat. Like you said, you got to thread that needle. You've, you're, you're, those people are looking to you. What are yeah. you going to do? Yeah, sure. And, and, and take issues like, you know, you issue a war, but take other issues that are contentious, right? Issues, uh, international, but take, take one around the news out of day, which is immigration. So remember the Pope is the Pope of the global church. He's not the Pope of the American church, nor is he the Pope of the Mexican church. He's both Catholics. Right. And there are Catholics on both sides of the border. Right. There are Catholics in Mexico and there are Catholics in America, and he's the Pope of all of them. And so, so in some senses, he listens from a pastoral standpoint right. to Mexican Catholics who have certain perspectives about right. their lives and immigration and migration, and he listens to American Catholics who have their perspectives about these issues, and he constantly has to... To, to, to be the Pope of all of them. So, right. you know, I, I can't imagine a, a, honestly a worse job. Right. There, there's supposedly a room right off the Sistine Chapel that like some in Latin, the room of weeping or the room of tears. So that after a new Pope is selected in the Sistine Chapel and the smoke goes up, 
Right. The 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 lucky guy who got elected to be pope goes into this little room <laughs> where he has to like you know choose a new name and weep because his life is over and he has to now assume right. this this responsibility. Um, and and it it's got to be a pretty heavy thing because you can never, you know, there, there's in in some sense you're you're you're, you're trying to to pastor and lead and manage an organization like that. But the, the whole notion that, that theology or doctrine or moral theology is just sort of made up and invented by some guy in a pointy hat in a palace in Rome. Right. That's such a cartoon and so false. I can't even address it. Right. So I, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you've answered all the questions I can come up well, with. Well, we haven't answered the issue of infallibility. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yep. Right? So I knew, I, you know, I thought you were going to hit me with that one. Um, so uh, I did. I, I passed over. I, I got... Hey, I, you, know, you skipped I over. I can't speak extemporaneously like you. I have to have ah, my okay. notes. Okay. Well, all right. Well, I always know that's one's lurking out there. Is the Pope infallible, right? The Catholic right, right, Church right. says the Pope is infallible. So if the Pope tells me that the Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl, can I bet the family farm on the Broncos? Right. And then if he, if they, they failed, is that prove the Pope is wrong. So there's a very narrow doctrine call, uh, of papal infallibility. And it's really only been invoked um, a handful of times. And, and let me explain the doctrine. It was, the, the idea is not that the Pope is infallible as a person. So Pope Francis or Pope John Paul II or Pope whoever comes next can't just wake up in the morning, decide whatever he wants, and he's infallible. What it is is that as he unpacks the teachings of the apostles and scripture and and the church and he guards and defends that it's the notion that the holy spirit guards the church ultimately from ultimately from failure and error and that when the pope articulates the teachings of christ through the apostles and the teachings of scripture on matters of faith and morals Mm-hmm. Not on matters of practical governance, right. not on matters of contemporary politics. So I know a lot of my conservative Protestant friends are like, oh, so if Pope Francis says that global warming is going to make the polar bears drown, right. then is that infallible? <clears throat> not necessarily. The Pope doesn't have infallibility into, uh, into to, you know, climate models. Right. I mean, he certainly has an opinion and I, I certainly would be wise or it's prudently prudent to listen to the leader of 1.4 billion Catholics, but he doesn't have infallibility on issues of right. climate models or what, whether we should have plastic straws or right. not. Uh, he has an opinion and I would be wise to listen to, right. to him, but it's not infallible. What he does have is when he, when he operates in a sense, as the successor of Peter and articulates the teachings of Christ given through the apostles and preserved by the Holy Spirit through the church based on scripture, that in a sense that the Holy Spirit does not allow that to fail. Okay. He speaks definitively on that. And on a couple of rare occasions throughout history, questions have arisen where a pope has said, this is the teaching of the apostles and scripture and the teaching of the church. And as long as what he says is consistent with that and he impacts that and articulates that faithfully, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit protects the church from error. Oh, that's good. The only other thing you didn't ask me about was the scoundrel popes. So there have been 270, oh, there have been 270 popes. I sort of did, but and yeah, go ahead. Like 20, yeah. There's like approximately 270 popes. And they're a bell curve. 
a few of them have been saints and amazing and, you know, Pope so-and-so the great, world-changing popes. A couple of them are scoundrels, maybe. But it's interesting, even the scoundrels that uh, a couple of them, there's only maybe, you can count them on one hand, uh, the ones who maybe, uh, especially some of the Renaissance popes who lived kind of debauched lives, mm-hmm. maybe personally, even though they may have lived kind of personally it's debauched word, debauched lives, they never altered church teaching on faith and morals. So in a sense, that infallibility guarding the good deposit, he may have, you know, there may have been a Pope with a mistress who had a child out of wedlock because he, you know, was practicing sexual corruption. He may have given a, you know, favors to his brother-in-law or something. Right. But he didn't alter the teaching of Peter, of teaching of Christ given through Peter and, and through the apostles. That, that has, you know, we've not had corruption right. of that nature. Well, you sort of answered my question when you talked, when you said that the Pope was constrained by 2,000 years of precedent. So it isn't like he's just going into the weeping room and uh, reading tarot cards or rolling dice. He's, when he speaks, he's speaking with the weight of all that behind him. Right. And uh, so that is, uh, so I can, I can see the difference between that and personal corruption or whatever. Uh, he certainly, uh, whoever that, whoever those guys who did that certainly would answer to God and I wouldn't want to be in their position. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, you, you can look at the worst of the popes and there's a couple of Renaissance popes that were maybe guys who lived personally immoral lives or had personally immoral aspects of their lives, you know, with money and women and whatnot. But they all had a sense that they were there to guard and preserve the faith, the, the, the teachings of the apostles, and none of them dared to alter that. Well, again, this is, is uh, this bigger, fuller explanation is a little more comforting to me because now I don't think that the Pope is uh, this completely autonomous uh, guy, uh, you know, free to screw things up. You know? Yeah. So, Good. All right. Well, yeah. I'm glad we got that out of the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's do it again. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.